this is Caitlin from StorySpeak Enterprises, and I'm here on the phone with Michael David, or MD of Tech Crew Media, um, an amazing media agency. Um, Michael, David, and I had the pleasure of speaking on the phone the other day, and actually, um, MD, there's a there's a blog post I have, and you don't know this yet, but I referenced you as the Fryhofer man. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so everyone, please welcome the Fryhofer man. <laughs> uh, it was it was all uh, complimentary though. Uh, all good things to say. Talking about where you came from. I mean, your generational lineage anyway. And uh, I'll have to send you to my latest blog post to check it out. <laughs> Absolutely, that's fantastic. Yeah. So um, you have a really great story, and I really wanted you to get right to it. I know you have a lot of struggles and you could talk forever about everything you've been through, but I wanted to first start with what is the hardest thing you've overcome in your journey to becoming an entrepreneur? I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's very common is you don't know everything. And I didn't have a safety net or a, <laughs> a backup crew to really rely on. And I had to take what things I had observed, uh, the stories from my grandfather growing up, that's the fraud of the lineage, uh, to examples of also the wrong way to do things. Yeah. You know, I grew up with a, a mom who was a bipolar manic depressive alcoholic. And when she was uh, on the cognitive end of the pendulum, she uh, didn't know how to say no, so she worked nonstop. Mm. And then... Uh, because a lot of people try to really look for a, uh, a, a middle pendulum balance. So I was shown both sides of it. And I remember speaking at my grandfather's funeral. I was in my early 20s. And it's because my mom didn't want to speak. And I remember getting up there, and I saw on one side of the, the funeral chapel what was basically one row of family. And that was it and the other half of the auditorium being full of acquaintances, business associates that he revolved his life in. And I, all of a sudden, my, the pedestal of my grandfather, who uh, was incredible in business and had achieved a lot of great things through the lineage and having to work hard for every opportunity, regardless of how affluent his family was, I saw this tremendous imbalance. And it was a rude awakening for me when it came to what I really thought success was. And I think we still fall into this trap, even now because of social media, of thinking success is a Lamborghini. Success is, you know, a huge mansion. You have to hire staff to clean. You know, success is having uh, anything and everything you could ever want or need. Mm. Yet, mm. I saw, you know, my grandma and her grandfather split when my mom was, a, was in high school. And so the... The atypical Saturday evening post family, the Norman Rockwell picture of an ideal family was now broken. Uh, you know, my grandfather, he did what he felt any man should do at that time, and that was work and provide for his family. Yet the family fell apart because he was absent. So money wasn't the answer. Money wasn't happiness. And so when I stood in front of both sides to talk about my grandfather, it was kind of a rude awakening for me. It was in a moment, it was an epiphany. Because here this man was in business a huge success, but he was a failure in family. Ugh. Because growing up, you 
you know, he would call us to wish us happy birthday. He was, he was usually drunk. Uh, he would come visit us once a year and take us home to dinner, uh, show us a great time, and then go back home. And so it was like he was trying to buy back or buy our approval that he lost because he was not present. And I was actually speaking at a university, and uh, I was asked the question, what was my definition of success? You know, I've never been driven by the acquisition of having a certain amount of money in the bank account. I was driven by uh, accomplishing things that I had set ahead of myself, which is what made me an accomplished drummer, cyclist, triathlete. Drummer? Uh, because that, Wait, yeah. I did not know about that, MD. <laughs> Sorry, just so, to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Can you give the lesson, listeners a quick background on your grandfather? My grandfather, uh, my family is, uh, from my mom's side, uh, immigrants from Austria, and they were bakers. And when they came over to the United States, they opened this up in the Northeast. And uh, if I remember correctly, Yorktown, Pennsylvania, was the, the first location of their bakery, um, delivering baked goods in a horse and wagon, you know, back in the day. And uh, the business scaled as they were delivering more and more baked goods to, you know, to the communities they lived in and um, ended up to where during the, at the time of the Depression in the United States, where my grandmother lived and grew up in Oklahoma, south of Tulsa, where they're living in poverty, my grandfather is being raised on a yacht in the Hamptons. So it was very much the, the bipolar side of the economy. And uh, so my grandfather lived in a, in a life of affluence because of Fraunhofer baking. Um, and so, you know, he went to uh, West Point, you know, went to private school, uh, you know, was a, a medic in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and then when he came back from the war, uh, my grandfather, or my great-great-grandmother uh, basically didn't give him a corner office, had him work uh, through the company, through the ranks. So he had to, with the premise of how can you expect to lead a company, uh, if you don't know how to do the work and you don't know how hard they work. So, you know, he was a traveling salesman. You know, he would open bakeries before he ever got to really a C-level position that took years to acquire uh, because the family was built on hard work. Uh, how else can you know how to lead unless you empathize, right? Hmm. So, you know, the, the company soon sold up in the 70s, but he continued to work in the industry, uh, becoming a C-level executive uh, with a company in St. Louis. Um, you know, so, you know, being interim at the work school of business, uh, you know, from a lot of hard work. And even though he had a life of influence 
in affluence, it still doesn't guarantee you because any opportunity that you're given, no matter how you've been given the opportunity, it's still yours to fuck up. <laughs> you know, and, you know. I, in Texas, there's very, there's very much this uh, cultish, brotherly inroad if you go to Texas A&M. And if you walk into an interview wearing that Texas A&M Aggie ring, you're pretty much guaranteed uh, uh, preference over anyone else that didn't come from that brotherhood yeah. by wearing that ring. But as many opportunities as that may be given, the, the opportunity to stay within your possession is never guaranteed. It's always everyone's opportunity to fuck it up. You know, I, I've, I've helped friends get jobs. I've you know, done a lot for people in my life, but I always tell them, you know, I'm going to help you do this, but it's yours to lose. So you know, I, 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 I can't take responsibility for that. Yeah, so when you say an opportunity to fuck up, can you please elaborate on that, besides it being fun to say, <laughs> the opportunity to fuck Absolutely. up? <laughs> and it's something that, that I wish more people in this day and age would really take full ownership of. Because yeah. we're, we're at a time now where we're living the age of the result of the participant ribbon, where everybody's a winner, uh, and you want everybody to feel good about participating in whatever sport or activity. And because you paint a painting, you know, everybody's going to get a ribbon. Well, ribbons and trophies were originally reserved for only those that actually accomplished. So, you know, when people live life with a sense of entitlement, if you get an opportunity in life because of someone you know or because of a relationship or, uh, you know, whatever you're able to leverage, you may be given that opportunity. But that opportunity has now been given to you with a sense of stewardship. You have a responsibility to yourself. And if you have zero sense of pride uh, in the opportunity to be given, if you have zero gratitude, then you're just going to expect it to stay in your lap regardless. Hmm. Well, if you get an opportunity, if somebody gives you an opportunity, it is one person's responsibility to fuck it up or turn it into a success. And that's the person that's been given. Hmm. So, and, and, I see far, and I see far too many people have way too many excuses and blame others and circumstances when, I'm sorry, you just weren't responsible with the opportunity that you were given. Yes. Actually, MD, I can totally second that because I was offered an opportunity and I it didn't feel right to me. And I actually come to find out as I kind of began just exploring, like, I was like, why the hell don't I feel comfortable with it? It's an amazing opportunity. And then I thought about it more and I was like, I would have totally fucked it up. Like, I was not ready. And I know they say things like you'll never be ready, but sometimes you have to know when you'll be ready because you're, if you're giving a responsibility, like, you'll, it, it'll be a wasted opportunity if you're not. You know, maybe if you don't have the right mindset. Um, so I'm glad that I was mature enough to recognize that. Like I halted and I was like, oh, you know what? I need to build these skills more before I can accept um, doing things for this person because right. I wouldn't want to waste the opportunity. Right. So yeah. it just takes a lot of self-awareness. Ooh, which leads me to a very good question. So MD, you're like wicked self-aware. I mean, you're, you guys, he has an amazing YouTube video about, um, he, it's called I Decide, right, MD? That's correct, yeah. Um, and it goes along with this whole fuck-up opportunity. <laughs> I really yeah. just love saying that. Um, about taking responsibility for your choices, even the bad things that happen to you, even the things that we may not perceive as our own doings. It's like making the decision to take ownership of everything that happens. So I wanted you to kind of tell everyone 
how you became so self-aware? Well, uh, to peel back the layers of the onion to get very personal, I became very self-aware after the end of uh, the marriage with my kid's mom, mm. who at that time of my life was my second marriage. And that was in my uh, mid-30s. And, you know, I got married to my first wife in my early 20s. Uh, because I felt like I was following the natural progression of a relationship. And in my life in high school, happiness to me was having a wife and kids, kind of your white picket, your white picket fence. My, my idea of happiness was never a corner office or having a million dollars. My wealth was always based on family because partly that family is what I kind of didn't have. Yeah. So that was my foundation of what I truly held as most important. So when... My first wife, uh, after dating a couple of years, we were married for 13 months. She literally, I went out of town. While I was out of town, she literally left, took everything and left. Wow. Uh, left me in financial distress. Uh, and then within 30 days, I lost my job uh, as an electrical engineer at a cell phone company. So my world was totally rocked. Yeah. And I was left wondering, what the hell do I do? And that's when I really dove into becoming a triathlete. I had to have a scenario that I could control. And that's when I began to realize, well, I don't like what's going on here. What can I control the outcome of? And that's why I wake up every, every day and decide to do. As an athlete, which I've been a competitive cyclist since the age of 12, 13, uh, that is a situation where, uh, you know, I would get on my bike, and it's purely my decision of how far I go and how fast I go, where more people would click or you say, hey, let's go ride 40 miles. They're already defeated. For me, it was an opportunity to go, well, how, how far can I go today? How fast can I go? And so that began to be very prevalent in my life. And when I remarried, and it was not expected, I was not looking for it, nor did I actually even want it, it was kind of swooped off my off my feet. Uh, we were married for nearly nine years, and we had two amazing kids out of it. And when that came crashing down, it, you know, no good marriage ever ends in divorce. It takes two parties. Mm-hmm. But I had the real, I, I had this epiphany. I've, I've now come through, you know, a lot of relationships in my mid-30s, now in my second marriage with two kids. I am the common denominator. Mm-hmm. I can blame a lot of people. I can blame a lot of circumstances. But when it comes down to my life and the results I'm getting, I am the common denominator. Mm-hmm. And I have to own my shit, good and bad, or else I'm going to be stuck in this cycle of results that I do not want. Yes. Mm, that's good. So I went on this discovery for probably a good year and a half, maybe two years. I was single, you know, and, you know, people, you know, I had a lot of friends tell me the best way to get over somebody is get on top of somebody else. <laughs> which, is always, which is always the best approach. I'll, I'll say that. However, I had to be able to figure myself out. And when it came to relationships, I knew what I wanted. But I had to figure out who I was first. Yes. Because relationships, whether they be romantic, they be professional, they be friendship, um, you cannot look at anything, even a job, as a missing link that makes you whole. And the whole Jerry Maguire, you completely bullshit, is just that. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for someone or something else to fill a void in your life, you're never going to find fulfillment because that fulfillment needs to come within yourself. So... When I finally went on this self-discovery of where am I fucking up? Where are my hangups? 
and why do I have them? I had to fix myself because I could never expect myself or want to be in a fulfilling relationship until I got my, my shit straight. Yeah. And I never put the responsibility of fulfillment on anyone or anything else. Oof. And so that journey allowed me to accept and really embrace challenge and adversity. Because I realized most people, when they, hit, when, when they face a struggle, they face things that really make their life hell. It's like being a cyclist. As soon as you know a, a group of cyclists saw a hill on the horizon, 99% would start breaking, they would start moving the gears down to make pedaling easier, and they already were complaining about how big that hill was. For me, as I began to listen to those people's words around me, I said, fuck that. I'm going to be the best hill climber there is, and I'm going to take advantage of where most people look at that as a moment of defeat. I'm going to look at that as a moment of victory. So I realized life isn't about becoming easier, because I had this guy ask me one day, he's like, Indy, when I first saw you were fat, you were slow, you were at the back of the group. Now, two years later, you're riding with the lead group. Like, does it not even hurt anymore? And I said, no, it hurts the same as it did day one. I just go faster. Mm. And so I asked him, you know, uh, you know, what are you doing to uh, to ride faster if your goal is to have a, a higher average speed as well? You know, I uh, I used to only go 10 miles, now I go 20. I mm. said, okay, well, I've heard how far you go, which is endurance, but what are you doing to increase your speed? So as an athlete, I took so many things about what happens for me when I look at uh, – moving the line in the sand a little bit further. So I realized if I'm going to go faster, I have to, in fact, force my body to go faster. I have to inflict pain and discomfort. So I realized failure is actually the frenemy of success. Yes. And that's where I thought you were going with the whole opportunity fuck-up thing. Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, opportunity, you're, you're going to get opportunities in life and you're going to make mistakes. You're going to figure out some things that maybe you didn't have and you fail. That's actually the best thing to do because you can't take ownership of success without taking full ownership of your mistakes and failures. Yeah. People are inherently, though, they look at failure and mistakes as inadequate. And that is a, a, a mental frame of mind that has been misrepresented to us as we've you know, grown up in the house that we've grown up in in the society. Uh, people are averse to failure and mistakes because they, they feel like it, it means they're less of a human in their pursuit of whatever they want to do. When you you know, you know hear the story of Michael Jordan, how many game-winning shots did he miss? He missed more than he made. Hmm. But it doesn't mean that he was a shitty basketball player. You know? Mm -hmm. So okay. I, always, I always advise people, uh, when you have an idea, you have a concept, you have a dream, go for it. But also assume and look forward to the moment that you fall flat in your face. Because yes. I tell people, when you make a mistake and you fail and you, flat, and you fall flat in your face, it's okay because when in fact you fall flat in your face, you're still moving forward. Yeah, I love it. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember you told that story of you were speaking at a conference and literally fell on your face and then said Absolutely. that. Right? Yep. How many yeah, people sure. were there did you fall in front of? Uh, 2,000. A few thousand yeah. people, you guys. He fell on his yeah. face in front of a few thousand people. But what a good lesson. Um, wow, okay, it time's up. But 
everyone, Michael David from Tech Crew Media. Um, I'm going to put a link to your website, MD. Um, is there anything you want someone to know about your business and how you can help people before we go? I think the greatest benefit we take at Tech Crew Media was, you know, I, in all the businesses that I've been a part of, have scaled and actually started myself, uh, the thing that I saw running uh, a large agency here in Houston was how service businesses grossly under-deliver. Yeah. And the thing that when it comes to business owners, whether small or large or the scaling entrepreneur, is very few people come into service businesses with empathy and bringing value first yeah. ever off, before ever offering anything. So with Tech Media, as digital and social media has drastically changed the scope and how you build a business, we come from where is your business, what do you want to actually accomplish, and then where are you at, and then how can we direct in the right way. That's where the conversation starts. We do not pitch shit. I love it. People are over people are over sales pitches. They need help. Yeah. So that's where we actually leverage what we do. And just a quick uh, little reintro. I should have said this at the beginning, but I actually met MD because I was talking to one of his colleagues on Instagram, and I was like, "Who the hell started your company? I need to talk to him because you guys are amazing." Like, uh, Andy was his name, and he's very uh, people oriented and totally upbeat and really knew his shit. Like, not just about. Um, you know, fluffy social media. Like, it was very um, results-based and very quali- high quality. You could tell the way he spoke about it. And I was very, very impressed. So I was like, I, I need to speak to the founder of your company. <laughs> and lo and behold, MD and I had two phone conversations. Literally just talked about our stories and ways our lives have sucked. <laughs> and here we are. So uh, I'll put a link to, to uh, his website in the description. And uh, maybe we'll have MD on again. Who knows? But thank you so much, MD. Thank you, Cam. I'm honored to have the opportunity. Yeah, talk soon.